Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Transdemic, trans and gender diverse experiences of the global pandemic. We are recording this episode on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to particularly acknowledge any brother boys or sister girls who are listening and the work of Black Rainbow, the national advocacy platform and touchpoint for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, transgender and intersex people. Head to www.blackrainbow.org.au forward slash donate to donate. We would like to acknowledge the support of our gold partner, Drummond Street Services Queer Space, who provide counselling and peer support for LGBTIQ plus people and professional development for organisations who work with LGBTIQ plus people and their families. This project was also supported by the Maribyrnong City Council's Together Apart Rapid Relief Fund. Just a note before we start, this episode contains references to mental health issues, suicide and difficulties accessing gender-affirming health care that some of our listeners might find distressing. If you need support, contact QLife on 1800 184 627 or Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to episode one of our four-part series. Episode one is about trans healthcare and experiences of disability during the pandemic. But first, some quick introductions. My name is Sam Elkin, and I'm a transmasculine writer, podcaster, and community lawyer living in Melbourne. My name is Darcy. I'm a transmasculine person working as a doctor in rural hospitals. And I'm Gemma Caffarella. I'm a cis woman, a radio presenter and podcaster, and I'm also a community lawyer. I've had 25 conversations with trans and gender diverse people from across so-called Australia about their experiences. It's just been an amazing experience and I really can't wait to share them all with you. In episode one, we're looking at trans and gender diverse experience of healthcare and disability during the pandemic. And we're very lucky to have Darcy with us, who um, Darcy mentioned is a doctor who's been working throughout Victoria during COVID-19. Darcy, tell us what that's been like. Yeah, it was scary at first. Um, I was really paranoid and uh, when I'd get home at night, I would go into my backyard and I'd strip naked and I, I wouldn't bring the clothes inside the house. Has there been enough PPE? <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of. Um, it's been changing brands a lot, um, definitely of varying quality. 
I remember a photo of you in um, some scrubs, I think, that looked like they were maybe from the early 20th century. (laughs) They had hyperbaric unit printed on them in sort of correctional facility font. I have theory they were from a Navy hospital. Anyway, they were unusual looking scrubs made of horrible rough fabric. I did email a few people at the hospital to work out who got them and where they were from, but um, no one replied. (laughs) It doesn't surprise me, Darcy. (laughs) I'd like to think that hospitals were focusing on things other than documenting the history of of their scrubs. Before we kick off into the experiences of our guests, I want to ask you two for a bit more of a personal take. What's the first thing that comes to mind about what it's been like for you specifically as trans people? I think when the lockdown was declared, I um, got really, really frightened because my um, doctor's appointment to get my script of testosterone was also cancelled at the same time. And I think my particular doctor was just unwell, but that kind of like led me into this spiral of concern that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get my script because I'd, you know, run out of tea and was quite anxious about getting it. And I've had some difficult experiences, let's say, with like mainstream GPs in the past. So I'm very conscious of trying to book in with a specialist gender affirming GP or, or somebody who has a track record of being able to provide that care in a respectful way. When you say that you've, you're kind of wary about the kinds of people you seek treatment from and you mentioned that you've had some negative experiences. What, like, what are you talking about? What does a negative experience of healthcare look like? I went to a new GP over in the western suburbs where I live because um, I thought oh, I should stop trying to take a spot from, you know, one of the very, you know, few trans and gender diverse specific health services that are available, go to my local service and, um, you know, things will be fine. But unfortunately, they completely messed up my data. You know, I was listed as female on the health record. They got my name wrong. Like, so they wrote Elkin as my first name. I think they thought my preferred name was Elkin. Like, I just think they got extremely confused about the whole thing. I had this sort of peculiar experience where I was trying to get a mental health care plan about a completely unrelated thing and you know, the doctor I was speaking to asked me if I wanted to put the reason for the referral down as like being transgender. (laughs) And I was just like, no, like at what point did I even mention that as an issue? And, you know, it's just that sort of like low level stigma, I suppose, the idea that, you know, your trans history has anything to do with your presenting mental health concerns. That really frustrated me, particularly because, you know, it's a service that I expected more from. So it just makes me hesitant because, you know, when you go to a doctor, you're probably not having a particularly good time already. And then, you know, having a shitty experience like that just makes you not want to go at all. Darcy, what about you? What are your experiences of the pandemic being in relation to gender, et cetera? Uh, Look, not much has changed because I've been going to work as usual. Yesterday I got asked if I liked Ellen as uh, the only question someone <laughs> asked me. Um, the only question worth asking anyone yeah. at any time. <laughs> All right, well, let's get on to um, the conversations that I've had with over 25 trans and gender diverse people across Australia. So I think the thing that we should start with 
um, that affected many trans and gender diverse people was the cancellation of elective surgeries. My name is Teddy Cook. I'm ACON's Manager of Trans and Gender Diverse Health Equity. I also moonlight as an adjunct lecturer for the Kirby Institute Sexual Health Program at the University of New South Wales, and I'm a board director on the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health, also known as OSPATH. Elective surgeries, even though the word elective makes it seem optional, elective just means not urgent. You know, we've seen elective surgeries be postponed and cancelled across Australia. And and even though they are starting to come back, they will be coming back very slowly and in a very staged manner. And I know that the chest surgeons in particular, but other other surgeons that do surgical intervention as part of gender affirmation for people are in regular contact with people who are on their wait lists. But it, it is harder for people who are trying to see a surgeon, trying to make an appointment, and, and that's just not happening really at the moment. My name is Johnny Valkyrie. I'm 23 and I live on Yagara and Turrbal land in Queensland. My pronouns are they and he. I am genderqueer, transmasculine, transgender, homosexual and intersex. I have a background in education and community service and I am a history writer for transgender, gender diverse and sexuality diverse people and cultures in history. I waited to have this procedure from the time that I realised I was uncomfortable with the way that my body was developing. And it was not until two months ago that I was able to have this. And my surgery happened one week before COVID-19 restrictions were put on what was called elective surgeries. So I really got lucky. I am glad because I had actually anguished over this. I wondered whether my affirmation procedure was going to be postponed and how long for. If it was, then at least I could stay indoors and not have to bind because one of the main reasons I had this procedure was due to chronic pain. Not only dysphoria, but the chronic pain of binding in Queensland, it gets really hot. And so if you're wearing a binder in Queensland heat, you are going to sweat, you are going to get rashes, you are going to feel uncomfortable 99% of the time. At least I could get away with not binding in the comfort of my own home while social distancing and quarantine. That's what I thought to myself, but it became increasingly urgent for me to have this procedure and I called my doctor a couple of times that week and she said, I don't have answers for you, but we'll do everything we can. And so I packed my bag, not for the surgery, but for the psychiatric hospital, because if I was not able to have this surgery that I worked hard to pay for, that I needed for my mental health and for my sense of self and connection with my body, then I wasn't sure what kind of state I was going to be in. So I was preparing for the worst. And then I got the call 48 hours before my surgery date to say that There had been no restrictions placed as of yet, and it was going to go ahead. And the relief was incredible. I knew that I didn't have to wait any longer and that I was going to take one of the first steps to aligning myself with myself. Hi, uh, my name's Law. My pronouns are they, them, and I am in Melbourne. I am actually 
preparing for a hysterectomy on the 30th of June, uh, which has snuck up because when the pandemic stuff hit, there was obviously a lot of uncertainty about anything that had been scheduled surgery-wise for everyone. Um, And I just sort of didn't think about it because I didn't want to be shocked by it not happening. So I sort of just assumed it wasn't going to happen and didn't think about it at all because there was no point sort of wasting precious energy on worrying about it. Um, So I very neatly compartmentalized that away. And then only recently sort of had a phone call going, hey, uh, we can do this. Are you still, what's your situation? Are you still happy to? So I've had some very helpful accounts from people who've gone in for blood tests or to get the COVID swab come back and say, oh, I actually feel safer in that environment because they're so on top of it. Risk-wise, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm more worried about the, the sucky part of the surgery itself, which was always going to be the case. Just the invasiveness of it. Um, I've heard that the, uh, the initial sort of waking up and recovery process is a lot tougher than top surgery, which I've also had last year. So Darcy, Teddy there was talking about the name elective surgeries. Um, what do you think about the name? Is it, is it a is it fair name or should we, should we give it a different name because it's annoying everybody? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we, we can all sort of hear the conservatives in the background saying that, you know, that we shouldn't be having these surgeries at all. So when they say elective, or we hear unnecessary, you know, they're not publicly funded. Uh, we really sort of have a difficult time arguing for the surgeries. Is it a treatment for a mental health disorder? Um, or is it, you know, an avenue for gender-bending joy? Does it just make life easier? The decision for surgery means something different for everyone. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that the term would, elective would carry so much with it if we were talking about a different surgery. Elective surgery just means that it's planned. It might be urgent, it might be life-saving, but no one has to jump out of bed in the middle of the night to perform it. Darcy, obviously people have been quite upset by having, you know, quote-unquote elective surgeries pushed off uh, or, you know, delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Why is it that medical staff might might try to delay a surgery? Like what kind of risks are there for, for having people in a hospital while there's this, you know, quite contagious disease floating around? There are a couple of reasons, I think, for the um, delay of surgeries. One of them was that uh, hospital resources were all being uh, pulled into COVID. So, Various things were shut down, some elective surgeries. Just for, in one of the hospitals I was working at, um, we just needed the ventilators that they would usually use in surgery. We needed the space uh, to isolate people. And then another reason was the risk to staff. Uh, when someone goes in for surgery and they get uh, general anaesthetic, you know, that in- involves uh, controlling the airway and it's sort of a lot of the uh, virus can um, be sort of put into the air during that process uh, and it can be very high risk if they do have COVID. So people also talked about the concerns about the possible impact of COVID-19 on accessing HRT. Darcy, can you give us a very, very brief rundown on the absolute basics of hormone replacement therapy? And this is absolutely basic because I would like to point out that I have no specialist training in transgender medicine, uh, but HRT uh, stands for hormone replacement therapy and 
everyone needs some kind of sex hormone because outside of manifesting secondary sexual characteristics we develop in puberty or medical transition, uh, they also have other important functions such as maintaining bone health. So trans people and cis people lacking sex hormones because of either removal or dysfunction of the ovaries or testes uh, need sex hormones. And even if you don't have a shortage, uh, hormone replacement therapy can also literally replace your existing hormones roaming in your body as the hormones you take as medicine can suppress your body's own production of sex hormones. Both estrogen and testosterone come in a variety of forms, injections, pills, creams and gels. In terms of shortages around um, hormone replacement therapy, I've heard um, people talking about shortages around access to estrogen. My name's Simona Castricum. I'm a musician and architecture academic at the University of Melbourne. And my pronouns are she, her, they. I know that there has been some chat around shortages um, and but it isn't something that's directly directly affected me yet. And I hope it doesn't in the future. Mm. <laughs> but it is definitely my concern, huge concern. If there's a bit of sort of spike chatter around that kind of stuff, is that how does that affect, I guess, hoarding? The last thing we want is for people to hoard medication in that sense. So I just read on social media last week that Equinox had said that there's a shortage on Progenova, two milligrams. I went into a bit of a panic about, um, okay, where are my scripts at? What's my local pharmacy got? What doesn't it have? Uh, and, and and also just like scrambling into my drawing, seeing how much I had to. So uh, I guess that's the consequence of that information going out. And that was Simona Castricum who provided us with her, might I say, absolute banger, the half light to use as our theme song. For many, COVID-19 has also meant a delay to their plans to start HRT. I'm Sita. I use them pronouns. I identify as non-binary. I yeah, live on Wurundjeri country, Melbourne or Nam. I tutor. I do some academic stuff and I um, do some creative stuff as well. Finally, like I finally had my appointment. Then I had two more appointments um, that were going to be within a month and then I was going to be on tea. Um, but then the pandemic happened and that kind of got sort of indefinitely moved forward or indefinitely like moved back, I, th- I guess is the better way of saying that. And yeah, so I kind of at the start was like it hit kind of like the end of March, I think is sort of the end of March. And I was like, damn, I was, I would have been on tea today, like if this was not the pandemic and that, and I don't know when I will get to do this thing now um and so that was kind of pretty stressful at that time but then um yeah I had like a phone appointment by the like they sort of got things together by the end of April and so then by the end of April I was having kind of phone appointments and that was really smooth and really nice like the phone appointments that I had I found them easy and maybe like even easier than being having in-person appointments um really to talk about these sort of things and yeah, after that, it was really smooth and the yeah, really lovely. My name is Dr. Eve Rees. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a historian at La Trobe University in Melbourne. The beginning of lockdown coincided with 
me sort of deciding to pursue medical transition, which is something I'd been endlessly debating with myself for the past two years or so. I had socially transitioned last year, coming out at work with friends, changing my name, but I hadn't undergone any medical treatment. In the early months of this year, I decided that that's what I wanted to do this year. And so for me, one of the kind of first trans experiences of lockdown was this realisation that that wasn't going to happen immediately or, you know, perhaps not for the foreseeable future Um, because so many health clinics shut down, you know, elective surgeries were suspended. I had this real sense of the 2020 I'd planned for myself falling away and there was sort of sort of grieving attached to that. But then I kind of also quickly found that in many ways um, the experience of complete lockdown was incredibly beneficial to my mental health because not really having much contact with other people meant I wasn't really being gendered or misgendered by them. It was one of those experiences of really kind of realising how incredibly relational gender is that when I was alone in my apartment, you know, just bonding with my cats and my plants, my gender just ceased to be a source of stress or worry. I could just be me. I could just be a person. It was very similar to experience I'd had in the first week of January this year when I went on a five-day hike by myself on Wilson's Promontory. That hike was one of the best experiences of my life for many reasons, but one of the things that made it so incredible was this sense of just being completely free from the trappings of gender, just being a living creature out in the forest and the trees not giving a damn what gender I thought I was or what they thought I was, just being a human. And it felt very, very similar during the period of lockdown because you know, prior to that, I would be misgendered every single day. You know, I'm a transmasculine, non-binary person. The world in general really struggles with the concept of non-binary people. So even people who know my gender identity and know my pronouns, they still misgender me every day. And for the world in general, I'm just still read as female 100% of the time because I have a high voice. I don't know, for whatever other reasons they read me as female, I haven't, you know, I still have hips. And so it was just, it was actually just divine to be just a person living in the world with my cat. In many ways, lockdown was a really beneficial experience and a kind of clarifying experience that it enabled me to just be with myself without input from other people interpreting me and telling me how my identity in the world. And so it gave me a sense of calm and stillness and ease with myself that I haven't felt for some time slash ever. But I think it also put into question my desire to medically transition because I had decided to do that on the eve of lockdown. But with this kind of new ease in my skin, I felt during lockdown, it sort of made me reflect on how much of my desire to medically transition to take testosterone was just a desire to become more legible for the world, step out of the messiness, comprehensibility of a non-binary identity. And I don't know if I want to give in in that way. I'm not saying take medically transitioning for all people is giving in, but I felt like maybe for me, it was a kind of response to finding being non-binary so hard and what looking for sort of an out thinking well you know being I'm not a woman it's untenable to be read as female maybe it would be easier to be read as male maybe I'll just do that instead when you know the truth is I'm not male I'm non-binary you know I'm going to be placed in a binary gender box one way or another and so maybe it's okay for the time being just to kind of stay who I am hello my name is Travis 
one of the factors in why I stopped taking HRT was always thinking like, what if I can't get access to HRT at some point in the future? So there were a few different decision factors for me as to stopping, but that was one of them. I'm really concerned for people who aren't and aren't able to access it because it is so important. For me, my choice was personal as to not taking it. But when I started taking it, I think it would have been really distressing to not be able to access it. I asked Travis if he'd thought about situations like this happening before. Scenarios that I thought were really outlandish, like um, the collapse of global supply chains um, or being in a country where I couldn't access, you know, traveling overseas for an extended period of time or something like that. So I'm like the 12 monkeys person who I'm like, I'm not a full prepper, but I'm the person who's like, yeah, there might be a pandemic and then lol, it's never going to happen. And then it happens. So (laughs) I've noticed that my cream andrew fort is made in mount lawley in wa which is quite funny to me because i'm originally from wa and the idea that my gender affirming healthcare is coming from there seems quite ironic to me now given that i found it to be such an unsupportive place so we've always got perth one thing that has popped up on my social media you know and in other places a lot has been people complaining about this seemingly trivial topic of not being able to get their eyebrows waxed or, you know, not, be, not, not being able to go to their hairdressing appointments and the like. But one thing that is interesting, Sam, is that these allied health um, and also, you know, things that we would describe as, as beauty treatments and the like can actually be really essential for people who need to use them to affirm their gender. What has happened in relation to those kind of other allied health supports and the like? What are people saying about their experiences of that? Yeah, well, I guess for a bit of context, um, with electrolysis, I guess a lot of trans feminine people um, use electrolysis to reduce body hair um, to aid them in their um, goals around transition. But also um, what people might not know is that for trans masculine people that are intending to have a phalloplasty, um, what you usually do is get the um, skin from a forearm. So um, transmasculine people actually also have to access electrolysis in order to um, get basically remove all of the hair from the forearm before that surgery takes place so that, you know, the, the skin is, is hairless so it um, is more um, like a typical penis type skin. So yeah, I did speak to uh, Teddy um, about that. Certainly things like electrolysis and other more intimate type interventions that people might seek. And when I say intimate, I mean interventions that happen very close to another person, i.e. someone leaning over your face, for instance. That's been and will continue to be restricted. Another big issue for people accessing um, gender-affirming healthcare is access to speech pathology, particularly for trans femme people. My name is Asiel Adan Sanchez. I use um, Thetan pronouns. I'm currently in Wurundjeri country, out in um, so-called Brunswick. <laughs> uh, I am a GP at Northside Clinic, uh, which is down in Fitzroy North, uh, and I work predominantly in... Um, of queer healthcare, I suppose, and that that covers all aspects around trans and gender affirming care, as well as sexual health, HIV, reproductive medicine, etc., etc. It's a fantastic, fantastic job to have. I'm also uh, an academic and researcher at the University of Melbourne, and my primary work is centering around um, 
LGBTI health and medical education, so kind of training future doctors to ensure that hopefully one day there'll be an opportunity for all trans and you know gender diverse people to walk into any healthcare service and receive appropriate and affirming care. Speech path, um, the wait list is already so long; it was kind of made made even longer for for speech path specifically working in the trans and gender diverse space. So one thing that a lot of people have talked about in the pandemic is telehealth. Darcy, can you please tell us what is telehealth? Telehealth is basically getting your (laughs) healthcare needs either by video call or over the phone. It can involve sending pictures. It's obviously been used a lot in this pandemic and uh, Medicare have uh, allowed GPs to bill for it. I've personally found it for many things really quite useful and easy like when I just need to go and pick up a script or something it just means that I don't actually physically have to go to the doctor when I'm not feeling great I also know that there's been times when I really just wish I could just um actually physically talk to my doctor and not feel quite so alienated which I think Sam correct me if I'm wrong has sort of been what's come out of your discussions people talked about the benefits of telehealth um particularly for like general practitioner appointments it's funny because I generally don't, or I think of myself as not liking to talk on the phone, um, but I was able to kind of be walking around a park while talking about these things. Um, and I found that quite good rather than sort of be sitting in a doctor's office, like, yeah, looking at this person, looking at me and being like, oh my God, am I, how am I moving my body? How am I like seeming in this appointment? Like I have to be a certain way or something whereas I didn't feel that on the phone I just like had my information kind of in front of me I I don't know as I said I was walking around a park but I like had sort of printouts of things I had like a notebook with a list of things that I wanted to talk about and just felt pretty comfortable going through that um in a way that I felt less comfortable I guess in person you know, just the other thing, being someone who works full time, just time out of work, because all of those appointments always happen during work hours normally. So it made it actually a lot easier for me to manage those things because I suppose I have a higher healthcare needs than the majority of people who I work with. So you're kind of aware that you are that person who is going to appointments quite frequently and you have to kind of explain it every time you get a new manager or whatever like that. And it's kind of good to just go, well, this is only going to take an hour out of my work day rather than this is going to take two hours. Being in kind of like a regional capital city, access to healthcare was not amazing in the first place. Actually, what I found and and what I saw a lot of people, particularly people in the disability community saying when the lockdown came and doctors started offering remote healthcare and remote appointments by default, that suddenly it was like, well, now we can access healthcare that much easier <laughs> than we could before. But for me, for my specific mental health problem, it's like severe depression and anxiety. So leaving the house, getting to an appointment physically is the challenging part. If I'm really unwell, going to get to a doctor is super difficult. And because I'm privileged enough to have access to an internet connection at home and a computer and a phone as well. I also spoke to a bunch of people who'd moved into an online format, either via Zoom or just over the telephone for their mental health support. And that was much more mixed in terms of the response to that. Attending, if I'm really unwell, attending a psychologist appointment is super difficult as well. Just the fact that suddenly I didn't have to really worry about the stress of trying to leave the house.
My name is Roz Bellamy. I use they, them pronouns. I live in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I'm a writer and an editor at Archer Magazine, and I'm also doing a PhD full-time, so a lot of different things at once. (laughs) I've had days pre-pandemic where I just really could almost not bring myself to drive to therapy, so it's made all of that easier. One of the days I hadn't charged my phone and so it ran out in the middle of therapy and I was panicking and like running across the house to charge my phone. And then he he emailed me and he was like, you know, we're pretty much done anyway. I'll see you in two weeks time. And I was like, no, 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 like you don't understand. We need to finish. (laughs) So stuff like that has been like a real challenge for me. My name is Darcy. I use they, them pronouns. I live in Preston, right on the border with Coburg. I am a white, non-binary trans person working in volunteer management in the community sector. I am a musician and I do a lot of different needle crafts, including tattooing and knitting and embroidery. I am disabled and experience multiple kinds of disabilities on the physical and mental levels. And I really love cats and live with three of them. I actually started seeing a new therapist via video and we haven't met in person yet. That's an interesting way to start seeing someone for healthcare. Again, it allows me to access therapy without having to leave the house. That can be really important. I did a session with my psych online, which I didn't find really that helpful. There's something about sitting in the room with a mental health practitioner where you can, I guess, engage with with them in a face-to-face sense that I find really, really useful. And Sam, are there some people who have just kind of completely neglected all the medical stuff altogether? Yeah, as EL did mention that. So we did see quite a number of people essentially delaying their care, sometimes to the detriment of of their own mental health. And it was a really tricky kind of space to balance of, um, you know, making sure you're, you're looking after yourself whilst living in a pandemic, essentially, and making sure that you're receiving the appropriate care and knowing where where to actually go get that. Also, some people discussed issues around accessing their medications at the pharmacy. I found chemists because I really rely on them. I found that quite challenging. Even like going to one of the local chemists, the way that they'd set it up, I think later on made a lot more sense. Like they had signs and they had a specific procedure to follow to distance. Whereas at the start, I walked in because there wasn't anything and kind of got screamed at and (laughs) and told, you know, get out, go go out to the front, do this. And so I think that it's such an important part of the healthcare process, especially for people people with mental illness or with quite a reliance on medication, particularly for the first month or two of the pandemic, that interaction and dynamic with the pharmacy was a pretty negative part of it. Yeah. So in terms of medication, I was pretty lucky. Um, The only thing that my partner and I couldn't access when we first needed it was asthma medication because people went and panic bought a lot of meds. They were out just everywhere we went. And one thing that was kind of difficult around that time was just the way some people in pharmacies spoke to both of us when we asked for them. Like we kind of got laughed at in a couple of the local ones. You think we have those right now? No. And one of them was like incredibly condescending and like made me fill out this long thing to go on a waiting list. And then I ended up getting called back an hour later and they're like, oh yeah, we got some, we've got some now. And I think perhaps the most startling thing that came out of all of my discussions with everybody around healthcare was the impact of discrimination. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Accessing healthcare can always be a bit tricky, I think, if you're trans. Accessing health practitioners who are sensitive to some of the nuances of providing healthcare for transgender people. During this time of COVID-19, really the most worried I've been is about trans people in hospital, largely because what we know is that trans people face exceptionally high levels of discrimination and stigma within healthcare settings, and in particular in hospitals. And so really it is one of the most unsafe places for us to be, that and public toilets, which is really where we want people to be washing their hands on a regular basis if they need to leave the house. So, Sam, at the start of the pandemic, I was quite shocked to hear you have a discussion with me about your fears that you might not be given a ventilator. Well, yeah, absolutely. Like if you're, you know, contemplating a system that is completely overrun and there aren't access to ventilators, who are they going to choose to provide life-saving support to? Are they going to choose a, um, you know, transgender person with a complicated mental health history or are they going to choose their cisgender counterpart without that complicated history? You know, and that's the real concern that I think a lot of us have that, you know, when it really comes down to it, um, you know, people can pay lip service to equality but, when they really have to make difficult decisions about whose lives are more valuable, this is where stigma and discrimination comes out. And I think that um, my conversation with Jax um, was really fascinating um, talking about this issue in the disability space. So my name's Jax Jackie Brown. My pronouns are they and she, although I use they a lot more these days. I'm a queer wheelchair user and I work in the LGBTIQ disability rights space I have done for about 10 years for a long time as a freelancer doing public speaking and workshops and speaking at conferences and stuff about that intersection and then now I work for Drummond Street Services in the LGBTIQ disability space. I've lived in Melbourne for about seven coming on eight years. I originally come from regional New South Wales, a little town called Lismore. And I guess the other part of my identity uh, that I didn't mention then was that I am a parent to a toddler. Um, So being a queer disabled parent um, is really important to me as well. One of the things we know for people with disabilities is that entering the hospital system um, is not always a positive experience. There can be a lot of assumptions made about um, about your life being less worthy than other people's. And we, we'd seen that in, um, in Italy and in the UK um, where the numbers were a lot higher than they ended up being in Australia where people with disabilities were, um, you know, uh, asked to um, sign do not resuscitate orders and in Italy were told to go home because they were prioritising younger, fitter people um, for uh, ventilators and for acute care. So, um, well, thankfully it didn't reach that uh, that scenario in Australia and we hope that it, the numbers don't increase. Um, 
it's a very real uh, fear for many people with disabilities that our lives and our access to equitable healthcare um, will be uh, not given the same priority as people without disabilities. It's really interesting hearing what Jax is saying that these entrenched and systemic forms of discrimination are things that people with disability and LGBTIQ plus people experience all the time Uh, but in many ways they've been heightened by the pandemic and also they've given us a reason to have a conversation about it and my personal take on this is is that really it's just provided more clarity and more impetus for all of us to do a little bit more about it what do you think Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we were talking heaps about discrimination in healthcare b- b- before the crisis because of the religious discrimination bills. So, you know, for the transgender diverse community and for disability communities, this is not a new conversation. We've been talking about this for a long time and the proposed, you know, government bill to make discrimination lawful in a range of circumstances on the basis of, you know, religious belief is is really, really concerning. And Darcy, I am curious about your particular perspective on this as someone who works within hospitals and sees or is involved in the decisions about the care given to people. Is this something that you worry about? Doctors are definitely guilty of looking to a patient's psychiatric history or their disability as a reason for their presenting complaint. And I think it's a real trap for getting the diagnosis wrong. So people with a disability, people with mental health histories, trans people, uh, we're all at a disadvantage right from the start when the clinician is trying to work out what the problem is. I think as far as COVID is concerned and uh, the potential lack of ventilators and staff to, um, to run the ventilators, I guess Going back to what usually happens is the number one question is usually, will this patient survive being on a ventilator? Because otherwise, what a, what a horrible way to die. And I've definitely seen that happen before where families have insisted um, that everything be done and it takes a, a really uh, experienced clinician to be able to uh, be quite firm and say, no, that's only going to cause them harm. But in the situation where there's scarce resources, I think the question might become who is most likely to survive. And I imagine there's an argument for not asking that question. Yeah, and if we're saying that trans and gender diverse people are more likely to um, have other health considerations, so chronic health issues, poor mental health, um, might have been living in poverty for a really long time, so might not have had the same access to medical care. I mean, it's lo- we know that we're a less healthy cohort than our cisgender counterparts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question that I worry most about would be who will have the best quality of life after surviving a ventilator? And um, I don't think that's a question that the doctor can really answer. Uh, I think that's a question for the patients. I've definitely heard it talked about. I've heard some doctors say things like, well, I think this treatment's futile because what are they going to go back to? They live home alone. They have no family or friends. They have no job. They drink a bottle of whiskey a day. 
Yeah, and I mean, trans and gender diverse people, particularly, uh, I think, older trans and gender diverse people are more likely to be socially isolated from their families of origin. And so if they're, you know, an older person with limited supports, yeah, that is really concerning if they're taught, you know, if they're considering, well, how many people are in this person's life as a relevant factor? Like, what about online connections? What about people that they speak to, you know, on the other side of the world that they might be a support for? I mean, I've never seen this stop a person from being offered treatment, but if we had a situation like Italy, I couldn't say that discrimination like this wouldn't play a part. I think Jack's really highlighted the fragility of the services that people with disabilities have. One of the things that people with disabilities were really asking for was personal protective equipment to allow our support workers um, who are coming into our homes to provide um, personal support to us to really feel protected and for us to feel protected. As we know, there's been a national shortage of protective equipment. Um, so that meant our support services were at risk of not continuing. I really feel, and I know a lot of other people who receive daily support feel, that if the numbers had increased, there was a very real likelihood that we would lack those supports in our lives that we were funded to have and that we'd advocated really hard for. And what that would mean was that we would then um, be reliant on family members um, and partners, etc., to be providing some of that support. Um, which puts additional stress on um, your relationships um, and and those dynamics with the people around you. So Teddy also mentioned the impact of discrimination on people getting tested at all. What we always know is that people who are most vulnerable, who are most marginalised, will be most impacted by any kind of disease that impacts populations and societies. And COVID-19 is no different. Uh, we see in many countries that people who are kind of showing up in the data are people who people of colour, who are Indigenous, who are older, who have multiple comorbidities who are either homeless or extremely vulnerable, of course, they're most likely to not be getting great experiences within healthcare settings, most likely to have had poorer experiences in healthcare previously, so maybe less likely to come and get tested. We see this in sexual health all the time. Dylan spoke about sex workers' response to COVID-19. My name's Dylan O'Hara. My pronouns are they and them. I'm a transmasculine, non-binary person from, from New Zealand originally, now living on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nations. I am a sex worker and I am also a committee member for Vixen Collective, which is Victoria's sex worker-only care organisation. I think that what we saw from sex workers at the start of the pandemic well before restrictions were in place or, you know, guidelines were being issued even. As soon as it really started to begin to make an impact in Australia at all earlier in the year, we saw sex workers immediately responding very proactively. You know, a lot of the kinds of intensified hygiene and cleaning practices that people have advocated for the general public and in all kinds of workplaces throughout this pandemic have been things that sex workers already do anyway. I didn't have to go out and buy lots of hand sanitizer. I always have lots, you know, like these are basics for many sex workers. We have lots of different ways of maintaining hygiene and, and things like that and doing harm reduction, really, is how I describe it. Sam, did you talk to people about their chronic illnesses and the crossover between that and COVID? 
Yeah, I actually spoke to another Darcy about that. It wouldn't be a trans and gender diverse podcast without having multiple people with the same name. The ways that I am disabled and experience health conditions mean that it's harder for me to do things like leave the house or socialise more generally with the pandemic because I'm at an increased risk and also complications if I do contract anything. It's meant that I have had considerable anxiety about leaving the house because I I don't want to put myself at extreme risk. I've been getting out less, which then means that, you know, my physical health isn't as good because I'm less able to move around and I'm less able to see people and less able to access all kinds of support. So whether that's, you know, healthcare support or just community and social support, um, it's much more difficult to do that if I'm feeling less able to leave the house. So, And then I guess because of the levels of anxiety and stuff that goes with that, that also has an impact on my mental health. It's largely been negative. So, yeah, I think that was interesting. And a lot of people reflected on the fact that for them, many aspects of COVID-19, I mean, not getting COVID, but the lockdown period actually improved their life um, on a day-to-day basis, those with, with chronic health conditions and anxiety and depression. I also asked um, people if they could think of any positive health um, outcomes that have come out of the pandemic so far. And um, Teddy, who's uh, from ACON, who we've already heard from, um, told me something that totally made sense, but I hadn't thought about it at all. One of the indicators that that tell us that people are heeding that advice is that we've seen a dramatic decrease in gonorrhea and chlamydia diagnoses over the last couple of months. And so we're encouraging people to be doing comprehensive sexual health screening throughout this time so that this also maybe gives us an opportunity to dramatically decrease prevalence of some sexually transmissible infections in the community. And that's a real silver lining I think as well. There's been less of everything actually the hospitals are pretty empty. So is this a good time to get sick? <laughs> uh, yeah maybe if, if ever there is a good time. So the other big issue that I tackled with a whole bunch of interviewees was of course mental health during the pandemic. We just want to flag again that we'll be discussing mental health issues including suicide. So please feel free to skip this section of the podcast if you're not up for hearing that kind of content right now. And check back with us in episode two about policing the pandemic. And another quick shout out to QLife who can be contacted around Australia on 1800 184 627 or you can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So pretty much everyone I spoke to discussed the impact of COVID-19 on their mental health. Um, And unsurprisingly, I suppose, for those experiencing financial strain, their existing mental health issues were definitely exacerbated. My name's Kat, trans, non-binary. You say them pronouns. I live in Melbourne. I've lived in Melbourne all my life currently. In the middle of moving to Geelong, lived there for one year couple of years ago and it was really nice so I'm happy to be going back but I work as a UX designer which has got a lot to do with the experience of websites and digital products so that's really fun I also talk a lot about diversity and inclusion and, and my own experience in that space too which is something I'm really passionate about I have my own mental health issues and, and a crisis that I was going through 
myself. So that has a condition called CPTSD, which is like PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder, I guess, past trauma and stuff. But um, that kind of reached a crisis point and then the pandemic hit and then I lost my job. So it's taken a huge toll on myself and my partner following losing my job. The landlord of the house that we rent let us know that he's going to be selling the house as well. So that was another big hit for us. And yeah, everything's been a lot. Simona discussed trying to get an appointment with a mental health practitioner. There's been a huge demand on, on their services, so getting an appointment hasn't really been that easy to try and get a, a regular time. Also, I think I was just so overwhelmed, I think, by where, what, what COVID might be and what it might do that I let that kind of fall away a little bit. On top of that, I think just generally that feeling of being unsettled, that feeling of isolation of being alone it just made things really difficult for me to cope when when things got tough as someone that lives alone yeah it was just really difficult to find ways to be connected because obviously couldn't leave my house and do my usual strategies which is to go down to i guess you know the club or you know to the you know, go out for dinner or you know engage in exercise in in a social capacity you know there were kind of the ways that I might deal with my isolation in some sense so those tools I guess haven't really been at my disposal and I guess there's just been a lot of nights where I've been sitting at home with my own thoughts (laughs) big thoughts (laughs) yeah that's definitely had a hugely adverse effect on on managing that but I've got through I'm Sandy O'Sullivan. I'm a Wiradjuri person. I use the pronouns they, them, their. I am an associate professor in creative industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And I live just north of Brisbane, sort of between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. Being my age and having a few chronic health conditions meant that I actually didn't know what I had at the beginning. And I really thought I was going to die. And realised I didn't have a will, an up-to-date will. I realised there were a lot of things that I hadn't said. And my only ever nightmare about about my very late in life understanding of my gender, my only nightmare, literal life, was about my family having a funeral for me and not knowing about my gender, but also then not talking about it. It was a weird thing to be focused on. Like, it was a weird thing for me now that I reflect on it. It wasn't a weird thing. Like, people <laughs> have whatever feelings they're having. But I guess on my reflection, I think I probably should have been more worried about dying. Um, So there was that as well. So that all of that happened, everything just started to really compound a bit after that. I tried to kill myself. That's never happened to me before in my life. And I've never had anything like that happen. And I think there were two things that were really surprising for me about it. One is probably a pretty crucial one. I reached out to people in a way and it was actually what other people said that changed that direction for me. It wasn't an affirming or anything like that. It wasn't any of that. It really was having conversation and it was what I needed at the time. The other thing that happened was that I came to realise something. I thought I knew a lot in a very abstract way about suicide and I probably, this is terrible, but I probably had value judgments on it or judgments on it sometimes and I don't even realise, didn't even realise that I had that until I understood that I wasn't going to leave a note. I mean, when I was a teenager and I would have had a whole lot of, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself, but I didn't mean it. 
you know, it was an extreme position that sometimes people have at different times in their life. But for me, it was when I was a teenager. And I always thought I'm going to leave a really long note and I'm going to tell people how terrible they were to me or how, you know, it was like this absolute, I didn't realise that, I didn't know why people didn't leave notes. I do now. I know that I didn't want anyone that I cared about to know what I was thinking. It was a really powerful moment, but it was also, I I can't even believe that I'm saying this, but so an hour later, I sat down and I wrote, I wrote an article about it, which is, which is a really like completely ridiculous academic thing to do. But it was also cathartic. I mean, like I always say to people, don't write articles that are cathartic, but I needed to. This was not about whether it was ever going to go anywhere or I was ever going to talk about it or was the need to write it out and to really understand it. I have, you know, Yindamaro Wanangamu is a saying, a Wiradjuri saying, so a saying from my community, so Yindamaro Wanangamu. And it means roughly translated to to live well in a world that's worth living in. So it's this idea of the world being good, but also you living well. And, you know, this isn't about responsibility to people. This isn't about blaming people who make these decisions over their life. But I realised for me, it did matter, did matter that I am doing important things, but also that I'm living well, that I'm doing things that are important to other people, I mean, um, as well as that I'm living well. I think the I'm living well got out of balance when I felt like I wasn't doing enough for other people. And that it's a really tricky thing, but I think this is all incredibly round in the way that all of our lives are going to be around that idea of who we are and how we understand who we are. And it's definitely around how I understand who I am. My name is Joe Ball. My pronouns are they and them. I identify as a transgender non-binary person. That's how I identify as I'm recording this now, but that may change over time and I may transition and take on different pronouns. I grew up in Brisbane and spent the first 21 years of my life in Brisbane and then I moved to Sydney for 10 years and now I live in Princess Hill in Victoria. I'm the CEO of Switchboard Victoria, which is a leading LGBTIQA plus community controlled mental health, family violence prevention, suicide prevention, supporting elders organisation. A lot of the issues, COVID-19, I think, is best understood as exacerbating mental health issues that already existed in our community. In that prior to COVID-19, we had high rates of suicide, high rates of poor mental health, high rates particularly in anxiety and depression. And so those things already existed. And I really believe those things were brought on by a systematic discrimination over people's lifetime and current and ongoing oppression and discrimination. So I think those things already existed. And And prior, just before COVID-19 in Australia, we also had a religious discrimination debate. So there was a lot going on where a lot of people were already feeling attacked and concerned about the future and the future of healthcare and service provision in Australia and whether there was going to be this religious discrimination that would, legislation that would allow people to be discriminated against when they were accessing care and support. So I think there was a lot of anxiety and and concerns that were driving poor mental health prior to COVID-19. So I think that's really important 
important. And, and at Switchboard, you know, we were really at the coalface of responding to how people were feeling about the religious discrimination bill. So I feel like there was already a bit of a crisis in our community. And then we went into COVID-19. And I think for any kind of group that was receiving discrimination, oppression prior to this, all those things have been exacerbated, you know, unemployment, poor mental health. You know, I don't think that COVID-19 has brought a lot of <laughs> relief. It's only made things worse for those who are already discriminated against. However, there have been some things that COVID-19 has brought about that I think have been really interesting about people's poor mental health. And one of the things is, is the job seeker allowance. Prior to COVID-19, most people understand that there was no such thing as a livable income for people who were unemployed and looking for employment. And through the job seeker, we saw this huge increase in that amount of money. And so much of, you know, the issues that we see on, on the people that we support in Switchboard, you know, it's poverty driven. A lot of the concerns that people have, it's discrimination and oppression and it's poverty. These are big reoccurring themes. So when we saw like the JobKeeper actually go up, what we did here was a lot of people telling us about how suddenly they could afford to buy food that they really needed, that they they couldn't buy before. So I think there were some really interesting things about COVID-19 where business as usual was completely disrupted and it showed us that, that we don't want to go back to the way that things were. And I think that's really interesting for queer people is COVID-19 is that like things were really ordinary and pretty shit for most queer people in Australia prior to COVID-19 and that was obviously more exacerbated at the intersections of queer people with disability, queer people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, queer people of colour. And so I think COVID-19 was a disruption to business as usual. And I think it's really important that we, you know, don't romanticise the pre-COVID-19 moment and just go, how quickly can we get back to the way things were? Because the way things were was nothing to be celebrated. And Teddy mentioned seeing similar things over in New South Wales. We've seen an incredible increase in experiences of depression and hopelessness. We've seen financial strain. We've seen self-harm increasing. People also talked about the impact of social media during the pandemic on their mental health. Uh, mental health-wise, I, I don't have like a clean label, I suppose. I have, as my, my therapist says, my anxiety runs very hot, whatever that means. Uh, and I have a sensory overload thing, uh, similar to uh, like the autistic community with finding sounds, especially and harsh lighting, fluorescent lighting, I can't tolerate w- without special glasses and things like that. It's been a harder balance to not fall into the, the Facebook black hole and not become hypervigilant about checking statistics every day on, you know, various websites about the pandemic and things like that. I really had to identify what was being helpful and what was spiralling anxiety and, and things out of control and find a balance there. I ended up actually making a, a daily kind of schedule using um, Habitica, an online app thing uh, that turns whatever you want on your to-do list or habits into basically a video game. Uh, and so that's been really helpful of establishing a I love structure. So a routine and also ensuring that I have kind of specific, I'm only going to do this for this amount of time which doesn't always happen, but it's still, it helps me to rein myself in. So I have to say that um, talking to people about the impact of COVID-19 on their mental health was really hard to hear. Um, I found it really upsetting at times. So I was really keen to hear from people about what they'd found useful to get through some of this tougher stuff. 
What always made it better was connecting with people, being able to hear the wonders and joy and stories of other people. You know, it's, it's one of the great things about the work that I do, but hopefully the life I lead to is that I get to hear amazing people who have always more interesting stories than me. Everyone's story is more interesting than your own, right? I love that. I realise that there is a joy in that and a responsibility to it as well at the same time. So I think all of that was pandemic um, issue for me. When I finally talked to my doctor, which wasn't very long after that, he was wonderful because he always is. Like to have a GP who gets it around gender immediately, hitting the ground running, knows as much as I do. That I know is rare and random. He's been my doctor for a long time. And to then be able to talk to him about this was powerful. And and obviously it was on the phone. You know, everybody was doing phone consultations and it was still, it was still powerful. So, yeah. And a big theme in my discussions with a lot of different people across Australia was about the resilience of the trans and gender diverse community. On the flip side, though, we've also seen people being and reporting an incredible level of resilience, which is very usual for trans people. We have very high levels of resilience, very high levels of pain tolerance, because many of us move through the world really in a heightened level of vulnerability and readiness. So even though we've seen people doing it real tough, we've also seen more people connecting online, finding communities, engaging in community groups in ways that they've perhaps never done before. And so that's really important and really powerful and and important to remember that even if a good chunk of our communities are having a really tough time, a good chunk of our communities are, are really thriving as well and isn't necessarily all doom and gloom, but we really must focus on ensuring that all trans people, people in our communities are safe and secure and feeling honoured and cherished and affirmed across all of their lives, really. Some people also talked about the lockdown being a really good time to focus on self-care. We need to really prioritise self-care. We need to really prioritise our lives before what we do. And I learned that the hard way. I went into a relapse because under the weight of everything this year that has happened to me so far and what I've seen happen in the world, I collapsed under the weight of that. And I'm not the only one. I'm confident of that. I'm not the only one. And over the next three weeks, we'll be talking heaps more about the different strategies people have used to overcome loneliness and poor mental health from connecting with new people online and having um, really hilarious and interesting first-time hookups online to getting pets, (laughs) uh, kittens and and puppies during lockdown or or rescue um, elder pets and getting involved in social movements to confront racism. So um, rest assured, we'll, we'll definitely continue to talk about that all throughout this show. This last few months has been a time of extremes and, you know, some of the things that we've talked about in today's show really illustrate that, you know, from people who feel more able to focus on their creativity, who feel more able to freely just not go out if they don't want to go out and embrace their introverted side um, right through to people who have really struggled with the isolation and loneliness and the very difficult impact on people's mental health. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to pick up on those themes in relation to all kinds of different things in the next couple of episodes. And I should say it's a really interesting time to be recording a podcast about um, healthcare because things are changing so much. I mean, when I was recording these interviews 
it really felt like we were coming out of the pandemic and that things were kind of getting better. Um, and, I mean, and you can hear that in, in many of the interviews that I've recorded, um, you know, most of which were recorded in, in early June, whereas now, um, you know, the three of us are living in Victoria, which is currently the most maligned state in the country. Nobody wants Victorians uh, into their state or territory at the moment. So, it is, yeah, a, a constantly changing scenario. So, yeah, would bear in mind that a lot of the things that we're saying were recorded, you know, at a particular moment in time and, and everything is changing day to day. Thanks very much for being with us for our first episode of Transdemic. We want to send a particular shout out to Simona Castricum who provided us with the use of her amazing track, The Half Light. And Simona Castricum actually has a new album out panic desire which i'm really excited to get i know you can get it on Bandcamp and probably a lot of other places too thank you so much for tuning into our first edition of transgenic trans and gender diverse experiences of the pandemic and we'll be back with you next week we would love to hear from you so please do get in touch you can get in touch with us at our website which is transdemic.com or you can send us a voice message via our Anchor FM site, anchor.fm forward slash transdemic podcast. You can also get in touch with us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash transdemic or old fashioned, send us an email, transdemic at gmail.com. We would really love to hear your experiences of the pandemic or feel free to shoot us any questions or discussion topics. If you're feeling particularly passionate about what we do, we would love to to have you support us via patreon.com forward slash transdemic. Thanks very much for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.